Chapter Seventeen of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. Mrs. Marshall sticks to her principles. During the autumn and early winter, it not only happened, unfortunately, that the quartet played altogether too much Hayden, but that Sylvia's father, contrary to his usual custom, was away from home a great deal. The State University had arrived at that stage of its career when, if its rapidly increasing needs and demands for state money were to be recognized by the legislature, it must knit itself more closely to the rest of the state system of education, have a more intimate affiliation with the widely scattered public high schools, and weld into some sort of homogeneity their extremely various standards of scholarship. This was a delicate undertaking, calling for much tact and an accurate knowledge of conditions in the state, especially in the rural districts. Professor Marshall's twenty years of popularity with the more serious element of the state university students, that popularity which meant so little to Sylvia, and which she so ignored, had given him a large acquaintance among the class which it was necessary to reach. He knew the men who at the university had been the digs and jays and grinds and who were now the prosperous farmers the bankers the school trustees the leading men in their communities and his geniality vivacity and knack for informal public speaking made him eminently fitted to represent the university in the somewhat thankless task of coaxing and coercing backward communities to expend the necessary money and effort to bring their schools up to the state university standard if all this had happened a few years sooner he undoubtedly would have taken sylvia with him on many of these journeys into remote corners of the state but sylvia had her classwork to attend to and the professor shared to the fullest extent the academic prejudice against parents who broke in upon the course of their children's regular instruction by lawless and casual junketings. Instead, it was Judith who frequently accompanied him, Judith who was now undergoing that home preparation for the university through which Sylvia had passed, and who, since her father was her principal instructor, could carry on her studies wherever he happened to be as well as have the stimulating experience of coming in contact with a wide variety of people and conditions it is possible that professor marshall's sociable nature not only shrank from the solitude which his wife would have endured with cheerfulness but that he also wished to take advantage of this opportunity to come in closer touch with his second daughter for whose self-contained and occasionally insensitive nature he had never felt the instinctive understanding he had for sylvia's moods it is certain that the result was a better feeling between the two than had existed before during the long hours of jolting over branch railroads back to remote settlements or waiting at cheerless junctions for delayed trains or gaily eating impossible meals at extraordinary country hotels the ruddy vigorous father now growing both gray and stout and the tall slender darkly handsome girl of fifteen were cultivating more things than history and mathematics and English literature. The most genuine feeling of comradeship sprang up between the two dissimilar natures, a feeling so strong and so warm that Sylvia, 
in addition to her other emotional complications, felt occasionally a faint pricking of jealousy at seeing her primacy with her father usurped. A further factor in her temporary feeling of alienation from him was the mere physical fact that she saw him much less frequently, and that he had nothing like his usual intimate knowledge of her comings and goings. And finally, Lawrence, now a too rapidly growing and delicate lad of eleven, had a series of bronchial colds which kept his mother much occupied with his care. As far as her family was concerned, Sylvia was thus left more alone than ever before, and although she had been trained to too delicate and high a personal pride to attempt the least concealment of her doings, it was not without relief that she felt that her parents had but a very superficial knowledge of the extent and depth to which she was becoming involved in her new relations. She herself shut her eyes as much as possible to the rate at which she was progressing towards a destination rapidly becoming more and more imperiously visible, and consciously intoxicated herself with the excitements and fatigues of her curiously double life of intellectual effort in classes and her not very skilful handling of the shining and very sharp-edged tools of flirtation. But this ambiguous situation was suddenly clarified by the unexpected call upon Mrs. Marshall, one day, about the middle of December, of no less a person than Mrs. Germain Fisk, Sr., wife of the Colonel, and Jerry's stepmother. Sylvia happened to be in her room when the shining car drove up the country road before the Marshall house, stopped at the gate in the Osage Orange hedge, and discharged the tall, stooping, handsomely dressed lady in rich furs, who came with a halting step up the long path to the front door. Although Sylvia had never seen Mrs. Fisk, Mrs. Draper's gift for satiric word-painting had made her familiar with some items of her appearance, and it was with a rapidly beating heart that she surmised the identity of the distinguished caller. But, although her quick intelligence perceived the probable significance of the appearance, and although she felt a distinct shock at the seriousness of having Jerry's stepmother call upon her, she was diverted from these capital considerations of such vital importance to her life by the trivial consideration which had, so frequently during the progress of this affair, observed her mind to the exclusion of everything else, the necessity for keeping up appearances. If the martial tradition had made it easier for her to achieve this not very elevated goal, she might have perceived more clearly where her rapid feet were taking her. Just now, for example, there was nothing in her consciousness but the embittered knowledge that there was no maid to open the door when Mrs. Fisk should ring. She was a keen-witted, modern young woman of eighteen, with a well-trained mind stored with innumerable facts of science, but it must be admitted that at this moment she reverted with passionate completeness to quite another type. She would have given, she would have given a year of her life, one of her fingers, all her knowledge of history, anything, if the Marshalls had possessed what she felt any decently prosperous grocer's family ought to possess a well-appointed maid in the hall to open the door, take Mrs. Fisk's card, show her into the living room, and go decently and in order to summon the mistress of the house. Instead, she saw with envenomed foresight what would happen. At the unusual sound of the bell, her mother, 
who was playing dominoes with lawrence in one of his convalescences would open the door with her apron still on and her spectacles probably pushed up rustic fashion on top of her head and then their illustrious visitor used as of course she was to ceremony in social matters would not know whether this was the maid or her hostess and mrs marshall would frankly show her surprise at seeing a richly dressed stranger on the doorstep and would perhaps think she had made a mistake in the house and mrs fiske would not know whether to hand over the card she held ready in her whitely gloved fingers in the interval between the clanging shut of the gate and the tinkle of the doorbell sylvia endured a sick reaction against life as an altogether hateful and horrid affair as a matter of fact nothing of all this took place when the bell rang her mother called out a tranquil request to her to go and open the door and so it was sylvia herself who confronted the unexpected visitor sylvia a little flurried and breathless but ushering the guest into the house with her usual graceful charm of manner she had none of this as a moment later she went rather slowly upstairs to summon her mother it occurred to her that mrs marshall might very reasonably be at a loss as to the reason of this call indeed she herself felt a sinking alarm at the definiteness of the demonstration what could mrs fiske have to say to mrs marshall that would not lead to some agitating crystallization of the dangerous solution which during the past months mrs marshall's daughter had been so industriously stirring up mrs marshall showed the most open surprise at the announcement mrs colonel fiske to see me what in the world she began but after a glance at sylvia's down-hung head and twisting fingers she stopped short looking very grave and rose to go with no more comments they went down the stairs in silence tall mother and tall daughter both sobered both frightened at what might be in the other's mind and at what might be before them and entered the low-ceiling living-room together a pale woman apparently as apprehensive as they rose in a haste that had almost some element of apology in it and offered her hand to mrs marshall i'm mrs fiske she said hurriedly in a low voice jerry's stepmother you know i hope you won't mind my coming to see you what a perfectly lovely home you have i was wishing i could just stay and stay in this room she spoke rapidly with the slightly incoherent haste of shy people overcoming their weakness and glanced alternately with faded blue eyes at sylvia and at her mother in the end she remained standing looking earnestly into mrs marshall's face the lady now made a step forward and again put out her hand with an impulsive gesture at which sylvia wondered she herself had felt no attraction towards the thin sickly woman who had so little grace or security of manner it was constantly surprising sylvia to discover how often people high in social rank seemed to possess no qualifications for their position she always felt that she could have filled their places with vastly more aplomb i'm very glad to see you said mrs marshall in a friendly tone do sit down again sylvia go and make us some tea won't you mrs fiske must be cold after driving out here from town when sylvia came back ten minutes later she found the guest saying my youngest is only nine months old and he is having such a time with his teeth oh thought sylvia scornfully pouring out the tea 
she's that kind of a woman is she with the astonishingly quick shifting of viewpoint of the young she no longer felt the least anxiety that her home or even that she herself should make a good impression on this evidently quite negligible person her anguish about the ceremony of opening the door seemed years behind her she examined with care all the minutiae of the handsome individualized costume of black velvet worn by their visitor but turned an absent ear to her talk which brought out various facts relating to a numerous family of young children i have six living said mrs fiske not meeting mrs marshall's eyes as she spoke and stirring her tea slowly i lost four at birth sylvia was indeed slightly interested to learn through another turn of the conversation that the caller who looked to her unsympathetic eyes any age at all had been married at eighteen and that that was only thirteen years ago sylvia thought she certainly looked older than thirty-one advanced though that age was the call passed with no noteworthy incidents beyond a growing wonder in sylvia's mind that the brilliant and dashing old colonel after his other matrimonial experiences should have picked out so dull and colorless a wife she was not even pretty not at all pretty in spite of her delicate regular features and tall figure her hair was dry and thin her eyes lustreless her complexion thick with brown patches on it and her conversation was of a domesticity unparalleled in sylvia's experience she seemed oddly drawn to mrs marshall although that lady was now looking rather graver than was her wont and talked to her of the overflowing fisk nursery with a loquacity which was evidently not her usual habit indeed she said naively as she went away that she had been much relieved to find mrs marshall so approachable one always thinks of university families as so terribly learned you know she said imputing to her hostess with a child's tactlessness an absence of learning like her own i really dreaded to come i go out so little you know but jerry and the colonel thought i ought you know and now i've really enjoyed it and if miss marshall will come jerry and the colonel will be quite satisfied and so of course will i with which rather jerky valedictory she finally got herself out of the house sylvia looked at her mother inquiringly if i go where she asked something must have taken place while she was out of the room getting the tea she called to invite you formally to a christmas house party at the fiske's place in mercerton said mrs marshall noting smilelessly sylvia's quick delight at the news oh what have i got to wear cried the girl mrs marshall said merely we'll see we'll see and without discussing the matter further went back to finish the interrupted game with lawrence but the next evening when professor marshall returned from his latest trip the subject was taken up in a talk between sylvia and her parents which was more agitating to them all than any other incident in their common life although it was conducted with a great effort for self-control on all sides judith and lawrence had gone upstairs to do their lessons and professor marshall at once broached the subject by saying with considerable hesitation sylvia well how about this house-party at the fisks sylvia was on the defence in a moment well how about it she repeated i hope you don't feel like going 
"'But I do, very much,' returned Sylvia, tingling at the first clear striking of the note of disapproval she had felt for so many weeks, like an undertone in her life, as her father said nothing more. Biting his nails and looking at her uncertainly, she added in the accent which, which fitted the words, "'Why shouldn't I?' He took a turn about the room and glanced at his wife, who was hemming a napkin very rapidly, her hands trembling a little. She looked up at him, warningly, and he waited an instant before speaking. Finally, he brought out with the guarded tones of one forcing himself to moderation of speech, "'Well, the Colonel is an abominable old blackguard in public life, and his private reputation is no better.' Sylvia flushed. "'I don't see what that has to do with his son. "'It's not fair to judge a young man by his father, "'or by anything, by what he is himself. "'You yourself are always saying that. "'If the trouble is that the father is poor or ignorant "'or something else tiresome,' Professor Marshall said cautiously. "'From what I hear, I gather that the son, in this case, "'is a good deal like his father.' "'No, he isn't!' cried Sylvia quickly. He may have been wild when he first came up to the university, but he's all right now. She spoke as with authoritative and intimate knowledge of all the details of Fisk Jr.'s life. And anyhow, I don't see what difference it makes, what the colonel's reputation is. I'm just going up there with a lot of other young people to have a good time. Eleanor Hubert's invited, and three or four other society girls. I don't see why we need to be such a lot more particular than other people. We never are when it's a question of people being dirty or horrid other ways. How about Cousin Parnelia and Mr. Reinhardt? I guess the Fisks would laugh at the idea of people who have as many queer folks around as we do, thinking they aren't good enough. Professor Marshall sat down across the table from his daughter and looked at her. His face was rather ruddier than usual, and he swallowed hard. "'Why, Sylvia, the point is this. It's evident, from what your mother tells me of Mrs. Fisk's visit, that going to this house-party means more in your case than with the other girls. Mrs. Fisk came all the way to La Chance to invite you, and from what she said about you and her stepson, it was evident that she and the Colonel—' He stopped opening his hands nervously. "'I don't know how they think they know anything about it,' returned Sylvia with dignity, though she felt an inward qualm at this news. "'Jerry's been ever so nice to me and given me a splendid time, but that's all there is to it. Lots of fellows do that for lots of girls, and nobody makes such a fuss about it.' Mrs. Marshall laid down her work and went to the heart of the matter. "'Sylvia, you don't like Mr. Fisk?' "'Yes, I do,' said Sylvia defiantly, qualifying the statement an instant later by, "'Quite well, anyhow. Why shouldn't I?' Her mother assumed this rhetorical question to be a genuine one, and answered it accordingly. "'Why, he doesn't seem at all like the type of young man who would be liked by a girl with your tastes and training. I shouldn't think you'd find him interesting, or—' Sylvia broke out. Oh, you don't know how sick I get of being so everlastingly highbrow. What's the use of it? People don't think any more of you. They think less. You don't have any better time, nor so good. 
and why should you and father always be so down on anybody that's rich or dresses decently jerry's all right if his clothes do fit do you really know him at all asked her father pointedly of course i do i know he's very handsome and awfully good-natured and he's given me the only good time i've had at the university you just don't know how ghastly last year was to me i'm awfully grateful to jerry and that's all there is to it before this second disclaimer her parents were silent again sylvia looking down at her lap picking at her fingers her expression was that of a naughty child that is with a considerable admixture of unhappiness in her wilfulness by this time professor marshall's expression was clearly one of downright anger controlled by violent effort mrs marshall was the first one to speak she went over to sylvia and laid her hand on her shoulder well sylvia dear i'm sorry about she stopped and began again you know dear that we always believed in letting our children as far back as possible make their own decisions and we won't go back on that now but i want you to understand that that puts a bigger responsibility on you than on most girls to make the right decisions we trust you your good sense and right feeling to keep you from being carried away by unworthy motives into a false position and what's just as important we trust to your being clear-headed enough to see what your motives really are i don't see began sylvia half crying why something horrid should come up just because i want a good time other girls don't have to be all the time so solemn and thinking about things there'd be more happy women if they did remarked mrs marshall adding i don't believe we'd better talk any more about this now you know how we feel and you must take that into consideration you think it over she spoke apparently with her usual calmness but as she finished she put her arms about the girl's neck and kissed the flushed cheeks caresses from mrs marshall were unusual and even through her tense effort to resist sylvia was touched you're just worrying about nothing at all mother she said trying to speak lightly but escaped from a possible rejoinder by hurriedly gathering up her textbooks and following judith and lawrence upstairs her father and mother confronted each other well said professor marshall hotly of all the weak inconclusive modern parents is this what we've come to mrs marshall took up her sewing and said in the tone which always quelled her husband yes this is what we've come to his heat abated at once though he went on combatively oh i know what you mean reasonable authority and not tyranny and all that yes i believe in it of course but this goes beyond he ended is there or is there not a, such a thing as parental authority mrs marshall answered with apparent irrelevance you remember what caviar said good heaven no i don't remember cried professor marshall with an impatience which might have been sylvia's he said any idiot can rule by martial law yes of course that theory is all right but if a theory is all right it ought to be acted upon professor marshall cried out in exasperation but see here barbara here is a concrete fact our daughter our precious sylvia 
is making a horrible mistake, and because of a theory we mustn't reach out a hand to pull her back? We can't pull her back by force, said his wife. She's eighteen years old, and she has the habit of independent thought. We can't go back on that now. We don't seem to be pulling her back by force or in any other way. We'd seem to be just weakly sitting back and letting her do exactly as she pleases. If during all these years we've had her under our influence, we haven't given her standards that, began the mother. You heard how utterly she repudiated our influence and our standards and, oh, what she says. It's what she's made of that'll count. That's the only thing that'll count when a crisis comes. Professor Marshall interrupted hastily. When a crisis? What do you call this but a crisis? She's like a child about to put her hand into the fire. I trust in the training she's had to give her firm enough nerves to pull it out again when she feels the heat, said her mother steadily. Professor Marshall sprang up with clenched hands, tall, powerful, helpless. It's outrageous, Barbara, for all your talk. We're responsible. We ought to shut her up under lock and key. So many girls have been deterred from a mistake by being shut up under lock and key, commented Mrs. Marshall with an ironical accent. But good heavens, think of her going to that old scoundrel's. How can I look people in the face when they all know my opinion of him? How I've opposed his being a trustee and— Ah! remarked his wife significantly. That's the trouble, is it? Professor Marshall flushed, and for a moment made no rejoinder. Then, shifting his ground, he said bitterly, I think you're forgetting that I've had a disillusioning experience in this sort of thing, which you were spared. You forget that Sylvia is closely related to my sister. I don't forget that, but I don't forget either that Sylvia has had a very different sort of early life from poor Victoria's. She has breathed pure air always. I trust her to recognize its opposite. He made an impatient gesture of exasperation. But she'll be in it. It'll be too late. It's never too late, she spoke quickly, but her unwavering opposition began to have in it a note of tension. She'll be caught. She'll have to go on because it'll be too hard to get out. The same vigor that makes her resist us now will give her strength, then. She's not Eleanor Hubert. Her husband burst out upon her in a frightened, angry rush of reproach. Barbara, how can you? You make me turn cold. This isn't a matter of talk, of theories. We're confronted with— She faced him down with unflinching, unhappy eyes. Oh, of course, if we are to believe in liberty only so long as everything goes smoothly. She tried to add something to this, but her voice broke, and she was silent. Her husband looked at her, startled at her pallor and her trembling lips, immensely moved by the rare discomposure of that countenance. She said in a whisper, her voice shaking, Our little Sylvia, my first baby. He flung himself down in the chair beside her and took her hand. It's damnable, he said. His wife answered slowly, with long pauses. No, it's all right. It's part of the whole thing. 
of life. When you bring children into the world, when you live at all, you must accept the whole. It's not fair to rebel, to rebel at the pain when... Good God, it's not our pain I'm shrinking from, he broke out. No, oh no, that would be easy. With an impulse of yearning and protection and need, he leaned to put his arms around her, his graying beard against her pale cheek. They sat silent for a long time. In the room above them, Sylvia bent over a problem in trigonometry and rapidly planned a new evening dress. After a time, she got up and opened her box of treasures from Aunt Victoria. The yellow chiffon would do. Jerry had said he liked yellow. She could imagine how Mrs. Hubert would expend herself on Eleanor's toilets for this great occasion. If she could only hit on a design which wouldn't look as though it came out of a woman's magazine, something really sophisticated. She could cover her old white slippers with that bit of gold tissue off Aunt Victoria's hat. She shook out the chiffon and laid it over the bed, looking intently at its gleaming, shimmering folds, and thinking, how horrid of father and mother to go and try to spoil everything so. She went back to the problem in trigonometry and covered a page with figures, at which she gazed unseeingly. She was by no means happy. She went as far as the door, meaning to go down and kiss her parents good night, but turned back. They were not a family for surface demonstrations. If she could not yield her point, she began to undress rapidly, turned out the light, opened the windows, and sprang into bed. If they only wouldn't take things so awfully solemnly, she said to herself petulantly. End of chapter 17